2: Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it. You love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today on the Jimmy Spencer, Hutt Strickland, and Johnny Halford edition of the show. That's right, episode 57. I actually didn't know off the top of my head any NASCAR drivers to run the number 57. Besides, I think, Norm Benning in the truck series maybe a couple times here and there. So I looked up NASCAR 57 car. And I found the picture of Jimmy Spencer while sponsored by Heinz. Of course, Heinz 57. Uh, And I saw Hutt Strickland and Johnny Halford had a lot of starts in that number as well. So on the Jimmy Spencer, Hutt Strickland, and Johnny Halford edition, we have, as you can see, Sam Hunt on the show. No, it is not the musician that got charged with DUI and couldn't perform at the NASCAR awards ceremony, Sam Hunt. It is the NASCAR Xfinity Series team owner and go-getter race car Former race car driver extraordinaire, that's basically what I call him. That's a mouthful I know. He has one of, if not the most unique backgrounds in the sport that I have been able to talk to. Um, we're going to discuss that from living in the Netherlands, or the Netherlands, and then racing himself, starting his own team in k and and then moving up to the Xfinity series, his never-give-up attitude, sleeping in a van, for goodness' sake. Among other topics it uh it's a really fun chat and I hope you guys enjoy it. Plus, Denny Hamlin wins at North Wilkesboro to close out the pro invitational series, and we have a race to frickin' preview this week. Holla back people. Start this episode as we start every episode with a good old fashioned (laughs) E NASCAR iRacing Pro Invitational Series recap from North Wilkesboro Speedway, virtually of course. It was a really cool ass presentation, um, and as I said that in this week's highlight hump day, the last Cup Series race at North Wilkesboro was in 1996 in September. I was two months old, so I have no memory at all of NASCAR racing at this venue. I mean, I racing they kicked butt. Dale Junior, Steve Myers, Bravo to you. I mean, it was it was a really really well done um, recollection and scan of this racetrack. It was amazing. So Denny Hamlin wins the race. He passes Ross Chastain with nine laps to go, and he winds up winning at North Wilkesboro. Sound the alarms that Toyota has won at North Wilkesboro. Boomers are triggered.
1: We've, we've had a thing over the last few years of winning very, very important races with uh, the Daytona 500, uh, obviously the elimination race at Phoenix last year to get in the final four, and then Daytona 500 this year, and then uh, you know obviously the two virtual wins, the first one and the last one. So I think that's the two that you probably want to win in these circumstances. So uh, it's pretty awesome to be able to have success and uh, be competitive and and race for wins, whether it be in real life or virtual.
2: And he bookended the series. He wins at Miami to kick things off in in a really exciting finish over Dale Jr. And he wins at North Wilkesboro as well in an exciting finish with under 10 laps to go. Now that the whole thing is over, how does he think that it went?
1: For me, it was fun to see the progression of the guys who, you know, have been doing it quite a bit. And you've also got the guys that are just starting it for the first time and, you know, have zero starts before the invitationals. And so to watch them get better and better and to watch the commitment that they all put in to get better. And listen, nobody wants to go out there and suck. And so I have witnessed personally throughout the entire week guys just running hundreds and hundreds of laps at these tracks to, to get better uh, because they want to put on a good showing and they want to be competitive. I mean, that, that's what drives us to be the race car drivers that we are in real life is the fire to want to be better. And so um, everyone knows that everything is level. There's No one has a car advantage. No one has a setup advantage. No one has a team advantage. It's all about the driver. And so uh, we take a lot of pride in, in performing well when that happens.
2: And now that we have real racing to get back to, of course, which a bunch of guidelines put in place, what are some of the nerves and and everything that comes with those going to be like when the green flag drops, no practice, no qualifying, just show up and race into turn one?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's going to be different, uh, but I I truly don't think it'll be any different than when we, I mean, it will be a little different in Daytona because we have practices and things like that. Uh, But to me, it's when we go to, you know, California or Atlanta, whatever the second race of the season is, that is always the nervous moment I have is, you know, I hadn't usually don't race anything in the off season. Don't do any testing. So it's it's difficult to be able to trust yourself and trust your instinct that you know what you're doing to barrel it off into turn one at the proper speed. And so the good news is now that we know that all these guys have got rigs, um, I, I guarantee all of them will be, on iRacing at some point out there making laps at Darlington just to get reaffirmated.
2: Overall, man, I mean, this this is a hell of a time to be in that eSports iRacing virtual simulation racing space. I get that this thing was not for everybody. I I was way, way into it at the beginning. And then my interest kind of tapered off as the series kind of rolled along. But I had a fun time watching it. And um, I think I speak on behalf of the entire NASCAR community. When we say above that all else, like we appreciate the fact that I racing gave us something to do. Um, and good for them that they're getting more business and their business is booming. I mean, we talked to Zach from SIM seats, Zach McAfee a while ago, and I mean, he is raking in dough right now. So, um, uh, congratulations to I racing and everybody involved NASCAR Fox sports who put on a really, really great and interesting production. I, uh, Again, I speak on behalf of all NASCAR fans when we say thank you for giving us something to watch. Interview time. I tease it off the top. Here is, without further ado, Mr. Sam Hunt, team owner, go-getter, former race car driver, do it or extraordinaire on Victory Lane. I wrote in my notes, it is interview time with Sam Hunt, team owner, go-getter, and former Race car driver. That's a long list. I feel like you're a jack of all trades, so to speak, Sam. Yeah, master of, of none, though. I'll, I'll allow it. I mean, Colin probably says the same <laughs> thing. He didn't say it outright last week, but I mean, he probably tells it to your face, so it's nothing new. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm glad to talk with you. It's only appropriate after we had Colin on last week. I feel like, mm-hmm. I mean, you're not quarantined at the shop because I know that you've been home and working on stuff, but you're at the shop right now. You guys are prepping for Darlington. You redid basically the entire place. I feel like this is your second home.
3: Yeah, over the past month or two, it really has been. You know, unfortunately, we had to send most of our guys home, um, at least for for a month or so, with everything going on. But um, yeah, I got this building. Um, it was the old Obica Racing shop, <laughs> which you know I'm sure uh, plenty of people know about, um, and it was affordable, but it was pretty, pretty rough. Um, you know, it, it, just had crap in it. You know, I think, I think they bought all of BK racing's yep. storage building. Con and I so.
2: talked with some horror stories about finding like Dr. Pepper hoods everywhere. Yeah. And <laughs> it was, it was rough. And the problem was, um,
3: the owner, you know, he, he thinks this stuff's a lot more valuable than it is. And, um, you know, it's just, it's not, so it, it never went anywhere, and it was just all sitting here. And the building was just, it's just rough. Not, not to you know, poke at them at all. Um, you know, it they, they just wasn't on their agenda to to clean the place up. I guess, but um, yeah, just been working on this place. You know, getting it presentable. You know, with with the people we're trying to have involved. You know, I want to have somewhere that you know I'm proud to bring people into.
2: Well, the the work that you did to redo it, I. I think you should be pretty proud of it. I remember we were texting to set this up like last week. And if you, if you haven't checked it out, go check out Sam's Twitter, not the musician, Sam Hunt, which we'll get to uh, (laughs) Sam Hunt 22. And I mean, the floors were in shambles. The, the shop itself, like the walls, just everything was, it just looked awful. And I remember we were talking about all the stuff that you did. And I was like, damn, you probably had a lot of people helping you. You're like, not really. (laughs) Like it it was pretty much just you, 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 took out all the floors, power washed everything. I saw you just got like a big like weight scale thing for one of your cars. I don't know what the proper terminology is, but it (laughs) looks good. It looks really good.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I had, you know, I'd have one person kind of here or there come in, you know, once a week and kind of check on me, make sure I hadn't fallen off the ladder and wasn't dead in the shop um, with my dog licking my face. But (laughs) uh, I mean, it it was, it was a little therapeutic, honestly, because, A, I had to learn how to do a lot of this stuff on the fly. Um, So it was cool learning how to do these things that, you know, hopefully one day when I have a a house of my own or a shop, you know, that I'm building for myself, I have a little bit of experience with it. But um, nothing wrong with a little bit of manual labor
2: um, to get where I wanted to be. That's right. Nothing new for you. Um, How has quarantine been otherwise? I mean, is your girlfriend sick of you yet?
3: um you know surprisingly not
2: and that pause said a lot though well i think
3: we've we've been together long enough to where like if we want to do our own thing like you just do your own thing even if we're in the apartment together like if she wants to like sit in bed and read and i want to do something else like there's no hard feelings towards doing your own thing um but i mean it was it was a great test you know As i Obviously, you know, with a girlfriend, you're usually not with them hundred percent of the exactly. time, all the time. So I I think it was a good test to to see if I, you know, I'll be able to put up with this person uh forever and she'll listen to this and, and probably slap me. <laughs> um, but it was good. You know, Nick Drake, who raced K and N um, years back and does sprint car stuff, he's he's one of my best friends and his now, fiance, uh Kaylin, they actually moved into the unit by chance, right next to us. Oh, cool. So it was kind of like us for having our own little um, place to. to it's like too to good in. to so, be true. I know, yeah. So it's uh, it's been as as good as it can be. You know, just hoping it all
2: passes over here soon. My mom, my my mom was saying that um, when I was over at my girlfriend's place, it was like, if you guys can survive this, you can survive anything. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: yeah. It's uh it's the perfect test. <laughs> and I, I read somewhere that like the divorce rate, the divorce rate, which is already stupid yeah. high, is like uh it's like up twenty percent oh, right geez. now. People being locked What's in,
2: higher? So. Divorce or unemployment, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're fighting for the lead. Yeah, seriously. Well, Sam, I know a lot of people, as we know, have interesting stories in racing. But you are at the very, very top of my list in their own separate category among the people that I know. You know, I'm not Bob Pockers. So I don't know everybody and anybody in racing, yeah. but with the limited experience that I've had, specifically in the K&N level, your story is pretty insane. And um, for the, you guys listening, you might be familiar with an article that I wrote for NASCAR Home Tracks. I think it was like a little over a year ago at this point. Um, and I talked to Sam about his background and I... I straight up like didn't know any of it. I was just trying to talk to him about running in K&N at the time and possibilities and aspirations and moving up, and I learned everything about this guy, and it is so interesting. So let's start at the beginning and go from there. You grew up in the Netherlands, or as I like to say, the Netherlands. Please tell me how and why you were over there.
3: Well, we love gold in Holland. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I, I was born in the States, And we moved over when I was really young. My dad took a job um, and him and my mom at the time, I think they wanted to travel some. So um, I found myself, you know, in the Netherlands at four years old. And yeah, over there, it was like soccer and and auto racing were were like two sports that, um, you know, people, people had, you know, there was really no baseball or football or, or any of the other stuff that, you know, we may do here. Um, so I played soccer and I went go-kart racing. I think it was my fourth birthday or something. You um, just tweeted went, out a
2: picture, I think, of your first laps behind a go-kart. Yeah. Game. So they
3: have a ton of those, you know, indoor kind of GoPro motorplex style rental car places over there. And they're like insane. They're they're three stories and you race uphill, downhill, like just what you'd expect so cool. out of your, your go-karts. Um, so I did that, and, I, you know, obviously I was hooked on it, and, and me and my dad, we we kind of run karts, you know, in the area, um, you know, kind of switching to the outdoor stuff. So I uh, became a fan of racing. Uh, my dad was never really a racer. He did a, lot, a little bit of motocross stuff, but he was a football player, and um, he was always a fan, and uh, we – know we'd go to spa to the f1 race every year and camp out and we'd you know go to some of the formula one races over there so that's really all i knew like i I didn't know anything about nascar as a kid um you know like i never saw dale senior race like i i you know i I never got to experience a lot of the
2: um the earlier days It just wasn't on your radar yeah and they really
3: didn't broadcast it over there so I, i didn't I just didn't know all i really knew was was the formula one stuff and um so then we moved back overseas um around 2004 2005 and um, how old were you at that I went, point i think i was like 10, 9 or 10 okay. maybe so still pretty young um, yeah still young and we were outside of richmond virginia and dmv uh, yeah so dad <laughs> my dad took me to richmond raceway um, I think it was 05 because Casey Kane was driving the number nine car for Everham. Um, and he was like the young gun, you know, he was like 24, 25. That was his
2: first win, right? Back, back
3: then it was like the youngest guy yeah. ever. And <laughs> uh, yeah, he won his first race. Um, so that was, you know, he was kind of the guy I, I looked up to after that and, um, you know, started following NASCAR um, from there out and, kind of progressed into hey like I want to go racing and at one point we had this old beater uh, Dodge Daytona that we ran locally in like the series where you can basically bring like any clunker car and like race in it (laughs) Um, and I remember learning how to drive stick in a parking lot with that race car Um, and I could just imagine like
2: having a race car in a parking lot and you and your dad (laughs) there just learning how to drive it (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah and it was like i we put the number nine on it like casey had on his car and i had like an old i, I don't know where we found it but i'm pretty sure i had like an old budweiser suit that was like 20 years old How Do like someone gave it to me at some point or something and i just remember being you know like 14 you're like
2: i'm casey kane i'm getting all the girls yeah, yeah, and I ran
3: the dirt karting stuff before that, um, called Champ Karts, mm-hmm. uh, which you know we raced pretty competitively for a couple of years before I kind of moved up to full size cars. Learned how to shift in those clunker cars, and uh, honestly, that was like the scariest thing ever because those classes have like the hardest of hard old men that race in them, just like. <laughs> guys that have done anything and everything in their life and have no problem like swinging on a 14 year old and move them out of the way. Uh, (laughs) So did that. And then we we got a late model stock car and kind of put it together Um, locally, raced that kind of Orange County, Shenandoah, you know, won a few races and fairly non-competitive late model races. And then we went to kind of the, the late model stock stuff in South Boston and Langley. And, um, yeah, from there went can, can in racing for a couple of years and, uh, you know, you know, the, the rest of the story. Yeah.
2: Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. So, so let's start at the beginning. So you got your formula one passion and kind of your drive for racing being over yeah. there in the Netherlands so much so that you named your dog Senna. Yeah.
3: <laughs> it's funny, I guess, um, I'm not super familiar with the hunger games, but I guess there's a main character in that movie named Senna. So like anybody I introduce outside of the racing circle. Oh, they think you're like, a
2: Hunger Games yeah. fanatic.
3: <laughs> I
1: love Hunger Games. I'm like I've never seen a
3: movie. Um, like nobody, nobody guesses it. I, you know, I, I would just I assume it's he's more popular, and maybe it's just the, the circle I'm in. And then there'll be that one guy of a 100 who's like, oh, Eric Senna, like the, the race car You're like, driving. finally,
2: somebody that understands. Yeah, which at that point, I'm like, no, he's from the 100 games. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, you also mentioned soccer. D- did you play at all and were you any good? Yeah, so I
0: played
3: overseas um, where you're like practically forced to be good. <laughs> um, like they, it's pretty much like, Boot camp over there. Even if you're seven years old, like we had an A team, a B team, a C team. We have like a, a a full bar clubhouse for our like youth soccer league with a bartender that would like serve us Powerade or water. That's or like awesome. Big beer. Um, it's funny. Like I remember going to the clubhouse and ordering like sparkling cider. <laughs> and we're all just
1: <laughs> sitting there like
2: cheers and, and you're like eight get- years old. Yeah, it was crazy. That's cool. Um I played, I played a little bit
3: um, when we moved back, mm-hmm. but then kind of got into American football um, and kind of fell in love with that as my second sport, and ended up doing that all the way through high school. I played quarterback for our high school, and um, kind of had to make a decision whether I wanted to go race. You know, I was I was too short to really go anywhere big for. <laughs> College football, but you know the Naval Academy and a few other places that um, ran the type of offense that a shorter guy like me, which I'm not five four. I don't want to like <laughs> talk myself down, but I'm not six four either. You're like so. the
2: Russell Wilson. It's all right. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I decided to go the racing
0: route, and, and here I am now.
2: I remember when we talked last year. What you were talking about when you moved back to the states and you kept with that racing theme because you had the bug already it became more quote americanized now for somebody like me i mean this is all i've known i've i've been to europe a couple times but i've never seen racing i've just i was in italy when there was a moto gp race going on and this entire bar was just cheering on valentino rossi like going crazy but that's my extent of like in person racing over on that side of the, of the world so when you mean it became more americanized for people that are only i guess used to americanized racing like What were the differences that you experienced coming back over here?
3: Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple, um, big differences that, that, I you know, I I vividly remember, you know, I know at first, um, the garage, the garages are much different. Um, you know, how people, you know, how people kind of went about the weekend seemed a little bit different over there. You know, also just. I had never seen or known a circle track race my whole life. So like I, we got here
2: and. Couldn't they, find a road course.
3: All the races here, they go in circles. And um, I remember first being like, wow, like, why? And then learning that some of them have road courses built into the inside of them. Um, I was really like thrown off by that. Um, obviously the more I learned about, you know, the NASCAR stuff, the more I loved the oval, the oval racing. And I think they both have um, such cool aspects about them in their own, in their own sense. Um, but it was just, it was just a different feel and, you know, I've, I've gone road racing a little bit in the past couple of years with some of the TA2, the Trans Am stuff. And um, it's, there's just like a different feel in the garage to me for better or worse. Um, you know, NASCAR, it's like you get there and, it's just like bam, 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 bam. Like one thing after the next, you're always just kind of rushing to get through tech or to, to get through tech if you failed the first time or, you know, to make sure people are here and there. Whereas over there, and I think in the sports car world, you know, the weekends are like four days long and there just seems to be a lot more downtime, you know, throughout the weekend,
2: in my experience. See, that's interesting um, because like from my outsider's perspective, who, who's like only worked in a, on a media side for a little bit, I was thinking it was the opposite. So that's interesting.
3: Yeah, no, I think, I think our schedules are just a little bit more condensed um, even when they are drawn out through two days. to where, um, which I also never owned a formula one team and had the same responsibilities (laughs) I have now on the formula one side. Start
2: small, Sam, start small. (laughs) It could be a a totally different
3: perspective of it. Um, You know, I, I just think, you know, I love how NASCAR is. I love how it's gritty and, you know, not as, you know, aesthetically beautiful as the Formula One stuff. And then I think there's a part of me that loves how they do you know, their thing and how, um, you know, they present themselves. And I'd love to, you know, have a little touch of what they do in, in my program. Um, obviously, it takes a little bit of money to do it like they do, but yeah. uh, maybe steps.
2: So at some point when you move back to the States and like you said, you're you're in the Virginia area in Richmond, at some point you got introduced to the late JD Gibbs while racing over there and that scene. Take me back there, like how cool was that? Because at that point, I I don't know if he was a big of a deal as he is now, you know, or was in the last decade or so, but you seem to have a pretty close relationship with him, which seemed to be a really, really cool moment for somebody like you. Yeah. So
3: um, my dad had a pretty close relationship to him when he was younger. Uh, JD played football at William and Mary um, in Williamsburg, Virginia. And dad's best friend who was the strong safety when my dad was a free safety in college was the defensive coordinator at William and Mary at the time. Um, and we were living in Williamsburg. That's where we we first moved to. And um Dad was helping out, and then he'd do players' dinners over at his house. So, Dad, being a defensive back guy, and JD being a defensive back at, at William and Mary, ended up coming over to Dad's quite a bit for you know team dinner, steak dinners. So, um, Dad was kind of a mentor figure for JD as well as a couple other defensive backs, um, you know, through his college years and kind of you know guidance through post college life. Um, and it's funny how that it kind of came full circle, you know, probably 15 years later, um, where we kind of got back in touch with J D and, you know, everybody knowing the person he was, he was just, you know, yeah, come see me. Let's talk. What do you want to do? You know, I'm willing to help. And none of it and, was
2: fake either, which is. Amazing. Yeah, no, none of it was fake at all. And
3: in, in racing, you learn that a lot of people will want to help you up front, but there's an all you know, an alternative motive where he he didn't want anything um, except to to help a kid out that had a passion for something. So So when he was like coming
2: over to your dad's house, like you weren't starstruck at all because at at this point he was just a college football player that your dad happened to know. He wasn't like, he wasn't the son of Joe Gibbs. He wasn't in the NASCAR scene. He was just a guy. I didn't know,
3: you know, I, I really didn't know any, any better. Um, and then, you know, 10 years, 15 years later, I kind of put the pieces together <laughs> and it's kind of like, holy, holy crap. Um, but, you know, I talked to him and, you know, he, he gave me, you know, they, they got us one or two race cars because they were getting out of the k program. And um, it's funny, he, we got a car from them over at in the Gibbs Xfinity shop and he said, we're getting rid of all the parts for k there's a whole upstairs floor and he's like, whatever you can fit in this race car, just take it. So me and a kid that was working with me at the time, we, we filled this race car up, I mean, over max capacity. <laughs> and we've got every single part we could fit into this one race car, rolling it out the door in. And, and I think it was a Saturday and, and the Gibbs guys were, were gone racing and we're rolling this car through the shop to leave. And some you know, non-travel guy, younger guy was there and he stopped us and he's like what are you guys like he had no idea we were taking cars parts anything and uh he's like what are you guys doing we just kind of looked at him and he looked at us and he was like you know what just just keep going like i was (laughs) never here so it was funny and then you know I, i raced a little bit and got to a crossroads to where you know i knew i i was an okay race car driver i didn't think i was I raced with Kyle Larson and a few guys who I saw really had uh, just natural ability um, to do spectacular things behind the wheel. And, uh, you know, I kind of came to terms with, you know, I was good. I always had to race conservatively because if we wrecked a car, we we didn't go race next week. And, um, you know, we we didn't have quite enough to to spend what it took to run up front. You know, it it got to the point to where, you know, we work our butts off. At home, you know, building a race car to go to a racetrack and you know work your guts out, and then you know I'd be in the race and I'd be doing everything to run, you know, tenth or eleventh, which back then was was a little bit tougher. Um, but then I'd have like a twelve-year-old lap me on the outside and like a Turner Turner car, or, you know, one of those those ride, those crazy expensive rides. And it it was just like effortless and it got to the point to where I was like, man, you know, dad, we, we can't, A we can't really afford to do this the right way. And it's just, it's not fun. Like just slaving and, you know, working 24 hours a day to build a car just to go get waxed by some 12 or 14 year old that, you know, really doesn't know anything about it and, and is just, you know, might, might not appreciate it as much. So was that
2: hard for you? Because I mean, every race car driver, it is innate in them to think that they are the best, no matter what equipment they're in, what track they're at. So, I mean, at this point you obviously had limited experience. I get that, but was that hard for you to reconcile with yourself of saying, all right, I mean, this guy's better than me. Kyle Larson just passed me this 12 year old, even though he might be in a better car than me, like he's probably better than me. Was that hard for you to reconcile?
3: I mean, I think my younger years, it would have been tougher. Um, But I I think I also like went through a lot of personal growth to where being a race car driver wasn't, you know, when when I was young, it's like I had to be a pro race car driver to be happier, to feel like I I was accomplished or, you know, I had done what I set out to do. And I think, you know, I I just grew up and through different situations and, and tough times with my family you know I, I kind of realized what I wanted in life and I was okay if that wasn't being a race car driver and um you know I, I think I was surrounded by some other kids whose attitudes and, and ungratefulness towards what they were doing um kind of rubbed me the wrong way and and it just didn't become as as you know cool or spectacular of a of a thing to be a race car driver. And, you know, I, we, we could keep doing it, but we weren't going to be able to afford to do it the right way and keep up with some of the teams that were coming in. Um, So I, you know, I I eventually went to JD and I just kind of asked for for his advice on the whole deal. And, um, you know, he just, he said, go, go to college, go get a degree, go um, do something that a lot of people aren't, you know, every kid in the world is trying to be a race car driver. Um, and there's, you know, a, a huge group of kids that are going through engineering school to, to be an engineer and her chief where you know, I went to study business and finance and wanted to start my own small business. And he was, he was on board with, with helping me get started if, if I did it and, you know, I finished and, uh, yeah, the Mont racing deal, what it is now was, was born in, I guess the end of 17 and we started in 18.
2: I don't want to I want to go back to that because you kind of glossed over, it, but I think that's really important. So you went to JD when you think that your racing career is pretty much on the outs and it's done. You asked him for advice. He essentially said, "Go get your degree, then come talk to me and I'll help you out." Maybe. So like you go do that for four years at VCU. Four and, four and half. a half years. Yeah. I, I don't want to short you that semester. I don't want to do it. So four and <laughs> yeah, a half I years. It. So four and a half years. You go there. You do it. You put your head down and you work hard and you come back. And I mean, we know everybody in this world can say, Oh, I forgot, or Oh, things changed. Sorry. I mean, you go back to him and it's like nothing ever happened. And he just, he helped you with anything that you needed. Up until that yeah. point, though, like while you were at VCU, were you in contact with him? Were you keeping him updated? Was there any sort of communication? Or was it more so just like, All right, see you in four and a half years. And then it happened. <laughs>
3: Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a lot, you know, we've always, I've always kind of had a little bit of contact with, with that whole group. Um, But, you know, I was racing a little bit here and there in college, Mm -hmm. you know, we'd run one or two off races just to kind of stay involved. Um, But honestly, there was a point in college where like I really wasn't involved with racing at all. Um, And, you know, I think it was that transition from not being a driver anymore and not really knowing what I wanted to do moving forward, um, so there was like one or two years, and honestly, they were they were really great years in my life that um, I really wasn't involved with racing. I just you know did the did the college thing and um, you know worked in different fields and kind of I kind of wanted to experience as much as I could before I made a decision on what I wanted to do. Um, you know, post college, because obviously in, in business and finance, there's maybe more profitable ventures after college. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people, some people think that you know, I'm making all this money being an extended team owner, but little it's, do
2: you know, <laughs> you know, there's there's, there's, there's not a ton of pride and and I love
3: it, but it's a struggle and. You know, it's and then a lot of my finance friends from college think I got a degree and now I work in a muffler shop because they don't know anything about cars. So they're <laughs> like, "Yeah, Sam's the guy that went to college and he started his own muffler shop in North Carolina." That's funny. So yeah, it, you know, I I think when I graduated and I still had that relationship, um, you know, I was like, man, I, you know, I, I've loved. I've loved racing since I was a little kid and I think I would regret it, not giving it a shot and, and going and chasing something that might seem insurmountable given my situation. But, you know, I, it's just like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to get this thing started and, and see where it goes and try to try to do it the right way and, and build some relationships. And, you know, it, I always tell myself, even through the, the tough times of running this team, you know, I, I learn a lot in my role that can help me, you know, kind of no matter where I'm at. Just lessons I, I probably wouldn't learn for another ten years if I was just, you know, sitting in a cubicle um, crunching numbers all day.
2: Life lessons. Yeah. So when you were in school too, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this because like you said, you wanted to give yourself a shot because you felt like you owed it to yourself to try the racing thing. But while you were in school doing the work, getting your degree, did that cross your mind at all? Or were you so, or were you more so focused on just like, do the work, get the degree and whatever happens, happens. Like, did you have racing on your mind as a thing that you wanted to accomplish once you got out?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, even when I was at my furthest away from it, um, I, I couldn't I couldn't leave it behind and I, I could not be a part of it in any capacity. You know, it, every year we'd end up going and racing a little bit and I'd end up going and, and spotting or working on people's cars um, just because that passion was always there. And I think I, think I always knew that's where I was going to end up, even when I was exploring other things. I just knew it was going to take a lot of help from a lot of people that believe in me to actually make it happen
2: and you got that with the help of not only jd but a lot of other people so i know i'm paraphrasing here and correct me if i'm wrong but jd essentially says all right here it is i'll help you out here's some equipment move down to north carolina let's try this thing how about you try this thing so you move to north carolina you start your own team like properly start your own team And a lot of stuff went into that. We will get to that. We'll get to you sleeping in a van and when Colin came into the equation. But those first couple months when you move down there and you're trying to start this whole thing basically from scratch by yourself, take me behind the curtain and put me in your mind. Like what's going through your mind and what all went into that that you might not see from the outside? Yeah,
3: it actually, after I graduated, it actually started in Danville, Virginia with Peyton Sellers in in that group. And so we, you know, I took the Gibbs cars that I had gotten and some equipment and we brought it to Peyton because I didn't have a race shop, you know, and and I didn't really know many people in North Carolina. So we took it over there. Um, I was helping him with side stuff on the late model side or the sports car side. And, you know, we built, got the cars ready um, and there was a kid there who was racing late models and, you know, had the ambition of, of climbing the ladder. So, uh, you know, being there, you know, inner Colin Garrett and his family um, who, you know, and Peyton Sellers, you know, obviously helped, helped coordinate this whole thing, but um, met them, told them, you know, what I was trying to do. And, you know, they, agreed to run three or four races just to kind of get Colin's feet wet with the whole thing. And this is K
2: in 2018, right? Yes. Yeah.
3: Um, which, which was really cool. You know, I met with, you know, Colin's family, you know, in particular his dad, Ryan Garrett, who's, who's been uh, a mentor to me for the past two years, as much as, um, a part of the race team for, for someone to trust a, a kid out of college, you know, almost with this pipe dream of, 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 going racing was, was a big part of this whole thing being born and something I'll forever be grateful for. Um, cause all, all I wanted was the chance to go to work. You know, all I wanted, I figured I could figure or I knew I could figure it out. I just, I needed someone to take even the single K and N race leap with me. Um, and he did that. And we, you know, we went to Langley and, and Colin ran really good in his first yeah, race. We talked and,
2: about that. He was like in the top five the whole time. Yeah. It was,
3: it's kind of funny. I don't know how detailed he got with it, but um, you know, he was getting used to the car, the tire wear was a concern that race. So they dropped the rag and, you know, my crew chief and I had talked and we're like, let's just tell him to go like every, half these people are going to save tires we can ride around in 16th saving, but, like, why not give him the confidence and just tell him to go? While it, so he takes off, weaves through the whole field, gets to second. We rode – you know, we raced second pretty much uh, 90% of that race, maybe a little less, because then the break at the end of the race came, and we were like, oh, man, like, our tires have to be just gone. Yeah. These guys that have been riding, you know, 7th through 18th um, are just, we didn't tell Colin on the radio, but we were in the pits like, oh boy, like, he's about to get just completely blown by. No, yeah, he was
2: basically saying that while he was running up front, because he he remembered that the conversation you guys had pre-race, he was weaving through the field and running up there, he was like, this isn't that bad. I, I think I can do this. Yeah, he's like, and, he's and he, he was waiting for himself to fall back. Cause he was like, ah, these guys are saving whatever they'll pass me. And then they never really did.
3: Yeah. So there's, there was like a restart at the end. Um, and We were restarting fifth or sixth. However we got to that point and we were thinking, cause you know, a bunch of the DGR guys were behind us and a couple of McNally's cars and we were kind of like bracing ourselves and, you know, they threw the green with 10 to go and we just didn't fall back. So we ended up finishing fifth or
2: sixth and hell of a debut. That situation was just
3: so cool um, with the group that we just slung together. Um, And uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of confidence, you know, born through that, that kind of just, you know, all of a sudden we're racing more and now we're going to go full time. And, um, You know, I learned a lot that year just having, you know, thinking I'm going to run three or four races, pretty much just do it by myself to, hey, we're running the full schedule, make it happen. And and we eventually, you know, moved the deal to Mooresville about halfway through to Robert Yates Racing Engines to the corner of their shop.
2: Um, Literally the corner.
3: Yeah, literally the corner. (laughs) Uh, I was in there the other day and we, we still kind of joke about, that little section of shop in the back corner where I had my two cars and the toolbox. Um, but that year just kind of taught us or taught me at least just how to make something happen. Even if you don't have all the tools or you don't have all the money or the people um, just kind of finding a way. And I think I tell people a lot um, college, you know, a lot of people that, that didn't go to college, you know, they're like, don't you forget everything you learned in college. And to a sense, yeah, like I probably couldn't pass all my exams that I took um, back then, but I'm a believer that college teaches you how to get through something. And, you know, you have your classes that you're just like totally out to lunch with, and you're not going to understand, but whatever avenue you have to take to pass that class, it teaches you just to get it done. And I think that's kind of like the most – the biggest takeaway from, from college that I kind of applied to
2: to the team that year. So you mentioned moving down to North Carolina, down to Mooresville from Danville, and you're in the corner of the the Robert Yates Racing Shop, or Roush, whatever it is. Um yeah. You don't have a place to stay. So you sleep in a van for how long?
3: Yeah, so I had Big Blue is what I, the van's <laughs> name And uh, we originally got it. I got it when we were in Virginia and we'd all pile in and drive to the race, the races Mm -hmm. in it. Like my whole team would go in and, you know, we go to Mooresville kind of on a whim and and kind of through a a sticky situation. And, you know, I had a place up in Virginia that I was still paying for and it was just a really bad situation. And I look at the seats in the van and I'm like, Hey, these things pop out. And, (laughs) uh, So I pop the seats out. I'm like, you know, I I can do this. And it's funny because those stories looking back, it's like, how how in the world did I do that? And think, you know, it's like why or how? It, it seems like, like no question.
2: A, seems like normal. You're like, oh, these pop out. I could sleep here. And in the moment
3: it was not that bad. <laughs> you know, there was a
2: TV that folded down
3: in between the front driver's seats. So you know, I had a sleeping bag and it was usually a sleeping bag and a bunch of tires yeah. that were with me. You send
2: me the picture. I, it's in that article.
3: Yeah. So I, you know, I had a gym membership at the, the gold gym, which was relatively close to the shop. So it was like perfect for me. I, you know, we'd work on the cars. I'd go to the gym, you know, get my workout in, use their shower and then go back with the van and I was already clean
2: and, and showered and ready not for not a bad setup. when you mentioned it. Yeah, it, it is funny looking back on
3: it and, you know, luckily it didn't last forever. And, you know, I had friends that begged me to just come sleep on their couch because they thought I was living some hobo lifestyle. <laughs> um, and every once in a while I would <laughs> take them up on a, on a couch. And um, if I had a little bit of extra money, there was a microtel in Cornelius that was like forty-five bucks a night. Living large. If I ever felt like spoiling myself, I'd, I'd get a <laughs> room from a microtel. It, it was it was uh, it was crazy times.
2: Well, I remember because I wrote down this quote that you told me back then. Um, so you're sleeping in a van. You called your apartment quote living big nowadays. And I mean, yeah. you hear stories like that, and it's just reminiscing. Here's another one. Um, This is when we were talking about Colin coming to the equation around 2017, 2018, and then wound up running the the rest of the year after Langley. Between the sponsors and the Garrett's, they wanted to run the rest of the races rather than three of four. We had to ramp up to full time without the money or manpower. Here's the quote that I like. We just kind of made it happen. Living in a van in David Lewis's parking lot. (laughs) That says it all. And the
3: funny part is David Lewis, who's who's the head guy over there at the engine shop, he, he'd he see me walk in in the morning and my hair would be all messed up. Like you could tell I showered and then went to sleep and didn't wake up and shower. And he just, he like, he, he was like, man, just come live with me. And I just said, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as people thought. Um, it was definitely unique. And, you know, it's a memory that I'll kind of always have. But, um, yeah, it was just a year of, of making it happen, no matter what, what the odds were. So
2: how long did you live in the van for?
3: Um, it was a couple months throughout the season. Um, you know, that and then, you know, crashing with, you know, buddies here and there. And then, you know, the few nights I had the Microtel uh, <laughs> resort to myself, um, you know, it, it had to be six months, seven months. Oh.
2: I'm telling you, when you make it like big time and you're a cup champion, you got to go back to the (laughs) Microtel and spend a night there just to remind yourself.
3: (laughs) Yeah, maybe they'll come on board and sponsor the race cars. Hey,
2: come full circle. That'd be pretty fun. So that year, Clinton Cram, who we'll get to at the end, because now he's uh, he's helping you guys big time here as the crew chief. That year, it was Clinton as the crew chief and Rhett Jones Racing. They were ones that helped you guys out big time in 2018 and 2019, because I remember... I think it was Bristol or sometime around there. Um, when you basically were it wasn't a wasn't a technical alliance, you know, contractually, but you and Rhett Jones Racing were pretty much attached at the hip and and you guys were working out of the same shop together and they helped you out a lot in terms of space logistically.
3: Yeah, so you know, like I was saying these past few years it's been other people, you know, stepping up and helping me that first year. You know we were in yates's building and then last year um you know we ended up in, in mark's building uh, right down the road here and you know he he brought me into a shop and and helped me help guide me a little bit and when we were understaffed you know he would he would put a helping hand in you know um he never charged me a dime for for rent or shop space wow. you know, not that we had a lot but um it's just been cool and and you know there's there's people that have kind of opinions on everybody down here and and people have different personalities, but at the end of the day, you know, your actions, um, kind of show who you are. And there's been, there's been a couple people, you know, throughout this short stint of of starting this team that, um, have just turned out to be great people that genuinely want to help and they'll push, you know, they'll push me when, when I need to be pushed and, um, it is. It is nice to have my own office here, my own little shop. No doubt. Uh, you know, it's not big, and it's it was a fixer upper, but you know, I've got the keys to it. My name's on the door, and um, there's a little bit of pride that goes into that now.
2: Well, speaking of pride, we move up from K and N. We didn't. We skip trucks. Who needs trucks? And now we're Xfinity <laughs> yeah. racing. Um, yeah. At what point? late in the 2019 calendar year and racing season at what point then, or was it before did you kind of start ramping up the thought in your mind and broaching it with Colin and some sponsors and some manufacturers and saying, you know what, let's, let's maybe go to Xfinity. Like let's maybe go Xfinity racing. When did that thought process begin for you?
3: Yeah, I think I've always had it in my head that if I'm going to do this whole thing, I'm not going to get complacent. Um, And then I'm going to do it and see how far I can push the whole the whole deal. So I mean, I love KN and series or, or now the Arca uh, Arca Menards series. You know that that whole um, family has, has been so good to me, and, and I love them to death. And it was just kind of a you know there was a car out there, and you know obviously it's it's a dream of mine to field an Xfinity car. Um, you know whether it's it's too soon or premature or Um, you know, I think there were some people, there were a lot of teams and people and drivers in the top series that wanted to see it happen and wanted to help out. So, um, you know, we, we kind of put this car together that, uh, it was an old Tristar chassis that had been through some other hands and we got real cheap and we just kind of slowly built it even, you know, at the end of the, the Canin year, as we were still racing, you know, we were kind of building this car in the background, and we were originally going to take it to Texas with Colin and try to make the race. And you know, I just kind of thought, you know, I, I want to put as much time and preparation into this because um, everything else is kind of going against me, um, you know. And we kind of picked Homestead because if it were to go well, you know, the momentum would carry through the winter time. And uh, and yeah, we went we went down there, and you know, I didn't know if we were going to run. 38th or 18th or 15th, you know, I had no real experience with it. Um, Gibbs Gibbs helped me out with a few things and they they put a motor in it and yeah, he qualified 15th, which for us was, was a really big deal. And that's something I try to tell people that that don't know the sport. You know, I kind of put everything I had made financially, everything i had physically into making that race to try and plant the seed to go to the next step and um i'm telling you what that qualifying as as terrifying as qualifying was at daytona this year that first one um was one of the scariest things i've ever been through and you know we got eight laps of practice because of rain and you know Colin not his fault at all he's like man I don't know like maybe we're good maybe we're not yeah. like I, I don't know like I haven't done it enough and then I remember we were like the second or third car to go out and he was second on the leaderboard after like three cars and I don't know like I don't know if we're gonna end up 38th and go home or if we're gonna hold and apparently the guy in front of us put a really good lap down because the next 20 cars went and we were still p2 wow Um, so once i kind of came to the realization that um we were not only in but we had, you know beat i think we beat all the jrm cars and a a few really heavy hitters at least in qualifying that had to be a Um, hell of a moment yeah and having you know like Roger penske joe gibbs those guys kind of seek me out to shake my hand, um,
2: was, was kind of surreal. And, I didn't know that happened. Tell me about that. Yeah. They just, you know, afterwards,
3: yeah. You know, I, honestly once with all, all I put on the line financially, um, I didn't watch the lap cause I just couldn't get myself to watch. <laughs> but once I knew what, what Colin and what we had done, um, you know, it almost brought a tear to my eye because, for me, in my position, it's all about these little victories um, that we have, and um, and then just kind of going back to the garage and for the race being lined up in front of a lot of good race cars, you know, having Roger there, kind of just introducing himself and, and congratulating me on a good qualifying. You know, it's, it's, I didn't think those guys even cared about it. Um, and obviously I talked to, to coach Gibbs at Iowa earlier that year and um, he, I'd given him that article you wrote and how he, you know, it said how much that was close to his heart how much, you know, he loved reading that and how he had had, you know, eight or nine stories similar to that surface that, you know, he'd either forgotten about or didn't know, you know, it kind of verified his kid is, is who he thought he was. And, uh, so there was a lot of cool stuff that happened, you know, the back half of last year. And, and, you know, that was, that was the beginning of the next
2: step. That's really powerful. Other than that, if, if anything else, now I know that coach Gibbs read one of my stories. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and on paper, you know, it was on his desk. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. so the crowdfunding aspect of things, cause I remember you, you shot me a text when the official website was going to launch. What what was the reasoning and the rationale behind that other than to raise money to help you guys get to the racetrack and perform like, cause that's not really a tactic that team owners and cup Xfinity or trucks, to my knowledge, that's not something that they use.
3: Yeah. You know, it was, it was a unique approach and we've had a relationship with racing for heroes, which is, you know, a nonprofit in Virginia that is close to, you know, the Garrett's and their family, you know, Colin's got brothers in the military and, um, you know it's it 's an organization that brings got you know veterans in who are sometimes at risk um, with mental health and you know they provide jobs and, and training and help to get you know people back on to a normal schedule and living a normal life that have been through things that you know we have never been through and barely relate to obviously they don 't they don 't have the kind of funding to be on a Uh, Xfinity car Um, so we created this fundraiser to let people any fans people that you know wanted to be a direct part of of building this team um, and they can point to it and say hey you know I I was a part of getting this car here Um, you know they could relate to it almost like it was their own Um, and at the same time you know we put these veteran-owned companies that combat veteran suicide on the race car because they couldn't afford to, you know, without the help of the fans and the people.
2: That's pretty cool. It's like, uh, giving them a piece of the race car. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I know there's,
3: there's been a few people that have gone that route and I think there's a, there's different ways that it's been done. Um, but again, we just wanted to be unique somehow. Um, not having, you know, big corporate sponsors and, you know, through that whole crowdfunding experience, you know, we've made connections with companies and and potential partners that saw what we did with that said, Hey, you know, I want to be a part of that. And I, you know, I want to help get this organization to the next level because we see how committed you guys are to to making it work.
2: So you mentioned Homestead. Um, That was kind of the lasting moment for you in terms of the nerves and finally making the show but something that I want to bring up and forgive me, cause I know it might be a bad memory, but was Daytona this year. No. Um, yeah. Because I remember when you told me that you were going there, I, I thought not really that much. I was like, all right, cool. You know, they made Homestead. They got TRD power under the hood. Like they'll, they're going to race at Daytona. It's going to be cool. But first you had to race your way in as in qualify. And you missed the show by what? A hundredth of a second, something like that. And, I didn't think anything of it in the moment because I was actually doing something else at the time. I think I had an interview with some other truck driver or cup driver and I looked on the leaderboard and I saw that the 26 was in the red below the cut line. I was like, Oh shit, I got to go gotta go to the pit stall and check what's going on. And I was like, damn, this is going to, this is going to suck. You know, like Sam's worked so hard. Colin's going to be down in the dumps and Colin was down in the dumps. He was just kind of upset with himself and the situation and, all your team guys that, that I've gotten to know through K K&N and everything, they were down in the dumps. And I expected you to be frankly like a wreck. And I, <laughs> I remember I came over to you and I was like, dude, I'm sorry. That sucks. And I don't remember exactly what you said, but you, you seem fine. You're like, Hey, you know, it happens, you know, move on to the next one. And I was like, what, how, how is he? So, how is he so calm and not upset? And, and what was me about this right now? But I think that, And I'm not trying to blow smoke because I think that it's really true. Like You are one of the most hardworking, determined, driven people, not just team owners, but people that I've seen because how old are you right now? 26. You're two years older than me. My birthday is in a couple months. You're, You're three, two and a half years older than me, and you're owning a race team that competes regularly in the NASCAR Xfinity Series. And you had your shot to make the biggest race of the year, frankly, Daytona, and you missed it out of things pretty much not really in your control by that much. And you were mature enough to look at it from a 30,000 foot view and say, "Eh, you know what? These things happen. We'll be back. Like I, I can't get that image out of my head of everybody being so down in the dumps, literally head down. And you're the ones picking them up and saying, it's all right. It happens. Like we'll go get them the next time. So yeah. I was going to ask about the heartbreak there and I'm sure it was heartbreaking, but for you, it seemed like it was okay. Yeah, I just, you know, obviously
3: it was, it was a huge heartbreak and and me, everybody had put so much into that race. You know, obviously we knew, we knew the risk and we, we knew the challenge, you know, obviously we were all hoping we'd we'd be faster than we were. Um, but at the same time, you know, I've just learned that there's no problems. It's just, there's just obstacles in this deal and, and probably just in life. And, um, I see a lot of peers, you know, they hit a problem or an obstacle and it just kind of shuts them down. And the only way I've survived over the past two or three years is to hit an obstacle and, and rather, you know, sulk in it, just move on. And, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as I knew we were out and, you know, we had missed the race, you know, it, it, it twisted my gut up for a minute. And then I was just able to, to hit the switch and say, okay, we're on to the next challenge and it's going to be a challenge financially to get out of this hole. It's going to be a challenge, um, for a lot of reasons, but, you know, going home and and feeling sorry for myself isn't going to fix any of it. And we, you know, I I did get out of that hole and now we're here lined up ready to go race again. Um, and I think that's just something I I've embraced through the whole journey It's just, you're going to have setbacks, especially in my position and um, can't feel sorry for yourself. And that's what I try to tell my guys. It's, you know, sometimes we are up against some odds with a lot of different things, but we can't, we can't use that as an, as an excuse, you know? Um, So I don't know. I think that's just kind of my personality. Um, You know, I think, people that know me well, wouldn't be surprised that that's how I was. Um, But, you know, I'm also, I'm also extremely happy outside of racing and I'm blessed to have people in my life, you know, on the other side that um, are so important to me and that I'll never lose sight of, of what's really important to me. So I think having, having that happiness, you know, in my life, no matter, how this racing goes has really helped me deal with with certain things um so yeah it was just on to the next one and and here we are you know we were going to go to homestead with colin and then um go to bristol after that and the whole covid19 thing popped up and it changed everything and we didn't know if we'd be allowed to race how how it would work and you know now it's it's looking like darlington they're gonna let us go race so uh I told, I told colin hey if we run this race you've never seen the racetrack <laughs> you're gonna roll out i mean i i can't you know i went to dover to start that K&N race last year um on a whim and i hadn't been in a race car in three years and i thought that was a lot and you know a kid like colin you know just rolling out to take the green flag in darlington all, and all places, places. yeah no
2: laps. it's like Holy cow, I can't I can't imagine being in his shoes we'll see um i'm gonna let you get to your virtual pit stall selection for (laughs) darlington this week but thank you for the time and i appreciate it it's been it's been fun to kind of rehash it and everything there was a lot of stuff that we weren't able to get to most notably i want to talk about why in the hell your dog is literally the happiest thing i've ever (laughs) seen in my life every picture of senna he is smiling ear to ear (laughs) and also the world famous michael scott pit sign that you guys have from the office i want to know kind of like The backstory of that. So we'll have to do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, uh, let's stay in touch and and do another segment or something. We will. Well, uh, we'll be watching, uh, the 26, hopefully Toyota Supra up front at Darlington. Colin, (laughs) hopefully just hold your breath down into turn one and hope it sticks. Right. Yeah, I mean, I need a drink or two before the green flag of that one. Or during the race, too. That might help. Yeah. <laughs> all right, well, yeah, um, all right. well, make sure you got your PP. I know you got your NASCAR-mandated masks and everything. Stay safe, yeah. and uh, there it is. There are the masks. Um, and we'll talk to you soon, man, all right?
1: Cool. I appreciate it, buddy. I'll talk
3: to
0: you soon.
2: And we're back. Hopefully, you enjoyed that chat as much as I did. He, Again, he's twenty. Six years old, people, and he is doing this. It is, it is something that only Hollywood will write. You know, you heard a rookie of the year with Henry Rowan Gardner, or Robin Boozer, Runamucker, and him being a pitcher for the Cubs when he's like ten years old or whatever. Not the same, but similar. You know what I mean? You know what I mean. Look, that's up the week. Cue that week. Cued up funky music. White boy. Mm-hmm. Tommy Baldwin Racing will be back this weekend for the first time since 2017 in the Cup Series. Josh Balicki is going to drive the seven car. NASCAR has expanded the starting field for Xfinity and Truck Series races temporarily to 40 entries. And that way, Sam Hunt Racing and Hunt Garrett Racing can be in the race this week at Darlington and possibly at Charlotte as well. Brett Moffat has been cleared to return to racing after breaking both of his legs in a motocross crash 59 days ago at the time of this recording, that is really insane and remarkable when you think about it. Nick Olila, I don't even know how you pronounce that, but he was hired as technical director at Gaunt Brothers Racing. He previously worked with the Australian V8 Supercar Series. Ty Majeski won Friday Night Thunder um, for Nice Motorsports, so congratulations to him with his ice cubes in a bowl setup. Brittany and Joey Logano had Jameson Jet Logano come into their lives in the world, so congratulations to the new parents of a second child. Texas said they will not have an IndyCar NASCAR doubleheader this year. And speaking of tracks, Sonoma Raceway, Chicagoland Speedway, and Richmond Raceway have all lost dates in 2020 due to COVID-19. Sonoma obviously had their one race, so did Chicago. Richmond loses their spring date, but their fall date will remain. So hopefully, if everything goes according to plan, everything will be in place for a NASCAR Cup Series to return to Richmond in the playoffs. NASCAR released some fines for people that will violate COVID-19 guidelines. Up to $50,000 will be coming out of their pockets if they do not comply. And Kyle Larson completed sensitivity training. For the world of outlaws, and he wound up competing at Knoxville this past Friday, finished in ninth. David Gravel won that event. It was a pretty entertaining finish. And before we sign off today on episode 57, guys, we have a race to preview. <laughs> this is amazing. Darlington this Sunday, 3 30 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox. Who's on the poll? I don't know. Who's gonna win? I don't know. Who's racing? We do know that. Among the notables, Ryan Newman is back for Roush. Matt Kenseth is back for Chip Ganassi. Um, Tommy Baldwin Racing is back. BJ McLeod, I believe, is, is is racing in this. At least his team is. I'm not sure if he is. I haven't checked the entry list. Guys, this is going to be great. Live sports are going to be back. Please, just watch. If you're not a NASCAR fan and you're listening to this, what better do you have to do? I'll answer that. Nothing. Turn on Fox at 3.30 on Sunday and watch these guys barrel it on down at the turn one at Darlington. It is going to be crazy, as Sam and I talked about. So I really am looking forward to that. And that will wrap things up for episode 57 of Victory Lane 2.0. Do me a favor, if you like what you heard here today, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud. Wherever you get your podcasts, it is likely that we are there for your consumption. I will talk to you guys next week, and we will have a race to recap and preview but we'll always of course have somebody from the nascar world to talk to and talk with thank you guys for listening as always this has been victory lane episode 57 i'll catch you on the flip side until then stay safe stay inside